Okay, welcome to Bullpen Session. This is Patrick Lillis, and thank you for listening. I hope everybody's doing okay, everybody's healthy, and, you know, adjusting to the self-isolation, hoping that you're getting outside and getting to walk and do whatever you need to take care of yourselves. Excited to share the conversation that I had with Christine Bruno. Um, I've met Christine a couple times. We have a lot of mutual friends, but I actually sat down to talk to her at the Southeast Theater Conference. And then because of a technical glitch, uh, the recording wasn't great, uh, computer error. And so we got to do it over Zoom the other week and, and have a whole different conversation and one that we would have been different uh, just because the world had changed so dramatically. But I'm, I was really glad to get to talk to her both times. And uh, Southeast Theater Conference was doing a thing on equity. They were focusing on equity, inclusion, and diversity in their programming. And Christine is not only a great actor and director, she is also an advocate for artists with disabilities. And that was one of the reasons she was on the list at uh, Southeast Theater Conference and uh, why she was there. And I I was excited to talk to her because we had met briefly at a Kennedy Center uh, event and we had mutual friends. And so it was nice to get to talk to her then and then again uh, this week to talk to her. And, you know, she, it's great. The conversation is, is lovely. And she talks, this time she talked a lot about uh, just the commitment she has to staying on the train is a phrase that I think we used a lot in our conversation, you know, keeping focused and just being unrelenting in your pursuit. And made me think about, one of the things I was thinking about is from the conference, you know, and, and being continuing on your pursuit is the great thing about the Southeast Theater Conference that I talked a lot about is that it is really connecting people with professional opportunities. Uh, maybe their first, their first job, their first apprentice, did auditions, and it's really connecting the edu- artist that's in an educational program with professional opportunities. And I've been thinking a lot about, you know, the farm is here to cultivate early career artists, and I've been thinking a lot about, you know, what should we do at this time? And I asked some students at Center College what they thought they needed, and you know, the first answer was hope, and Uh, which I thought was true. We all do need hope. And just seeing what everybody's doing online and the way we're continuing to create gives me hope, you know. But also my immediate answer was we should have hope that theater is going to last. You know, it's lasted a couple thousand years and it's gone through the dark ages and the plagues and uh, it's not the first pandemic, you know, so I believe it'll happen. But also all the work that everybody's doing gives me hope. But one of the things I've been thinking about that, uh, because another student said they were curious about what programs, what theaters are doing, you know, if they're not producing, how are they doing their their internships or their apprenticeships or those entry-level jobs that people are supposed to start if the programming's not happening? And I don't know what they're doing, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, what's the best way to find out and to share it, or if it's better to instruct people you know, to talk about ways to facilitate a way to say how to create opportunities for people entering into this field. And one of the things I thought about is if you, if you're somebody who has your first job, you know, if you are interning somewhere and they're not going back to produce this summer, you know, reach out to them and ask how you can be useful. 
you know, if you're working in a literary department, you want to do play development, you know, they still need plays read. And maybe, maybe in the time when people are in an office and there's not a bunch of other things to distract, maybe it's a great time to read plays and really get guidance as to how to share your feedback and how to, I mean, I was thinking about that because when I interned at Circle Reps Literary Department, you know, the most valuable thing was the, you know, was learning how to share the feedback that I got. And I got that uh, from the literary manager at that time. And, you know, it was great, but it's like, there are things we can still do. And as much as we want to wait for like, how are the theaters going to invite the early career artists to participate at this point when they don't know what they're doing and how they're going to start and when they're going to start fully producing, you know, it's a great opportunity to reach out and say, Hey, how can I be useful? Or here's what I think I can do that would be useful. Is it useful to you? And, you know, and, and to be of service, to stay connected. And on that, the other thing I've been thinking about with all these online Zoom productions is one of the reasons, you know, one of the things you tell early career artists is like, you know, you should go to everything, see who's doing the work that's exciting you, say hi to people, introduce yourselves. And a friend of mine was doing a play, a Zoom radio production, and talked about curtain call and I said oh it's great you do this because this is how you facilitate the talk back afterwards and he was shocked that we did a talk back and for the play uh, both of the zoom productions at Shenandoah and you know I said that was the most rewarding part not only because everybody was so thrilled to share how impressed they were and you know that we were doing something and that you were persistent during this time of pandemic but also because it's important for the audience and everybody to see that we shared this experience. But I also think it's really important for us to create a lobby. And I'm saying that because when we go to plays, you know, and you show up for that reading and it's a, you know, sure, you're going to go see the reading and you want to be entertained. You want to see somebody do a really good first play, first draft of their play. But you're also there to show up and to support and to show them that you're supporting and also to say hi to them and to get connected. And so for those of us who are facilitating productions online, we need to facilitate a way for people to say hi and to let their presence be known in some way and to be able to connect to people who weren't the, just the artists participating so that we can include and continue to grow our community and awareness for those of people who are interested in our work and who are showing up. And those are the people that we should continue to be paying attention to and also know and maybe invite to be part of something else. And if somebody, you know, and if you have that opportunity, stick around for the post show, stick around for the lobby. I'm trying to figure out how to do that. If anybody has ideas, email me. Uh, I'd love to, or reach out on Facebook or something because I'd try to figure out how to facilitate that that idea of expanding community and introducing new people to our community. And one way is the post-show lobby conversation. And, uh, you know, I want to make sure we do that. The other thing I wanted to say is, you know, if that's not there and you did go to a reading and it was in physical or you went to a play, you might hang out afterwards and just say hi to somebody and say, I really liked such and such. And I'm just going to encourage people to do that. You know, do it on social media, do it on Instagram or Twitter, or Facebook, you know, 
say, hey, I saw that, I listened to the radio Zoom play of Measure for Measure that Japal did, and you know, it was, you were great. And I really, you know, I played that part, and I thought I learned a lot listening to you, and whatever. And, and you know, if you have their email, email them, because, you know, we still need to be building relationships, you know, and we want to keep expanding that. So yeah, it's just something I've been thinking about, and I'm wanting the farm to cultivate that. And you know, as, uh, as we're about to start the relation, uh, listening to the conversation with Christine, uh, she is somebody who is works incredibly hard at being part of communities, and she is part of many different communities, and she's great at staying connected uh, with them. And which is why I was happy to finally sit down and talk to her. And now I've sat down and talked to her for a couple of hours and, and I look forward to working with her soon. Um, and with that, I'll let you listen to the conversation and play ball. I figured I should ask you immediate, how, how are you and, and uh, how are you spending your time? Uh, wow. I'm okay. Um, I'm okay. I've been, let's see, I'm, I'm going on a month of being quarantined, not because I'm sick, just because I, you know, I got, I, um, I actually did end up going to Canada. I don't know if you remember the last time we spoke. I, I do. How much, how long did you go up? What play were you doing? I was doing Cost of Living, yep. uh, Martina Mayock's play, and um, yeah, I was in Canada for a total of about 35 hours <laughs> before they sent me home. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was, I mean, I sh- probably in retrospect shouldn't have gone at all, but I think they were hoping against hope that the production would be able to move forward. And it was interesting because it turned out that two people in the in the cast of four are immunocompromised. And so they called me the Friday before I was scheduled to leave on Sunday. And they called me the Friday before and they told me, well, two people in our cast are immunocompromised. If you come to Canada now, uh, you'll have to be quarantined in your apartment for two weeks are you okay with that just you know in self-isolation I said yeah I'm fine because it was just when things were starting to heat up in New York and I kind of didn't want to be here so I was happy to leave and I said I'm happy to go to Canada and be holed up in a beautiful apartment that's 10 times bigger than my apartment for two weeks. And if need be, we can Skype rehearsals because of the way that the play is constructed. We could have had um, a couple rehearsals via Skype with my scenes. Um, And so that was the plan. And so I arrived on a Sunday afternoon, got all set up. They'd, They'd stocked my fridge with groceries because they knew I was going to be, you know, quarantined for two weeks. And then, so I was there overnight. And then the next day, the next afternoon, they called and the director, who I had not heard from yet, called. And as soon as I heard his voice on the other end of the phone, I was like, you calmly give me bad news, aren't you? It's very funny how that tone is so clear. Yes, yes. 
So, yeah, so, but the play's been postponed and not canceled. Apparently they had a, they have a hole in the, in their season for next season at the same time. So they're just moving it up a year. Well, that's, that's great. I was actually talking, uh, talked to playwright Rajiv Joseph last week and we were talking about when things get postponed, but then the season, the next season's full. Like yeah. how are they going to fill that slot and how does that happen? Yeah. So that's lucky. That's good. Yeah, it's very lucky. I mean, who knows what will happen? A year is a long time, as we've now seen in the scope of things. The world can change, you know. Yeah, yeah we can't predict anything. So, but, you know, we all have right of first refusal. So, you know, it's, they're being great about it. That is really great. And they were great. Just the idea that they were like, will you come up for two weeks and we'll take care of you. Yeah, and they were so great. I mean, they gave me a per diem and, you know, for the two weeks because they figured I was going to have to get groceries. And, of course, I didn't spend any of it. So I gave it – I tried to give it back to them, and they said, oh, no, keep it. So really? now I have a little bit of extra pocket money. It's not American money, and I haven't been able to watch <laughs> it, but that's okay. Right. Right, but it's there for when you can use it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Um, well, I'm sorry. The play, I'm glad it's being postponed. I'm sorry it didn't happen, but of course nothing is happening. And uh, it's very funny nothing's happening except for we're all on Zoom all the time. You know. I know. I know. And I, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure how I feel about it. <laughs> it's you funny. I, 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 yeah, I was really proud. I did this play. I think when I saw you at the Southeast Theater Conference, I was... I was directing a play at Shenandoah University, and we ended up presenting it on Zoom. And I was really proud of what we did. Oh, wow, that's great. Yeah. And the students did great, and they were in fully in character, and they figured out theatrical things to do, like turning off the lights, turning on the lights for the seance, different things. And I've been a big proponent of it. And now a week later that I'm on it for everything I do, I'm like, okay, I don't know if I'm a big proponent for it. I might like a phone call or, you know, in person. <laughs> yes, I, I know. I've been on it so much. I've had large meetings and small meetings, and I'm doing taking – you asked me how I was spending my time. I was saying to somebody, I'm busier now. Like, I figured, oh, I have to find a way to be productive in this time. And I think I've overscheduled myself because I've, I've got my weekly acting class is I'm jumping into that tonight. And um, I think I told you the last time we talked, I'm a member of the Actors Studio. And one of the things that the studio did was we all got together and people are offering Zoom uh, workshops. Oh, that's really, so, that's great. You know, to members. So I've been doing a bunch of those. There's a, there's a, dialect coach named John Sperry who got uh, stuck in Italy and he's a world-renowned dialect coach who's a member of the studio so he's been offering Zoom dialect sessions every week and people are offering movement classes and other things and writing classes so I've been doing that. Um, I also decided I got an email from Hunter College offering half price on language courses and uh i when i was in high school and college i studied italian and it's always been a big regret of mine that i never sort of went to italy and 
immersed myself in the language so I could become fluent. So I decided, well, I'm going to take a language course and see where I am. So I'm starting tomorrow. I'm starting elementary uh, Italian number four. So I'm not quite at the beginning. So. <laughs> I think that's a, it's amazing. That's the, that's the thing that people are like, everybody's saying like, oh, what would you do if you had the time? Oh, I'd take class. I'd learn a language. And, and you're doing it. <laughs> I am. Yeah. And, you're better at work. <laughs> that's, that's good. I, yeah. I feel like this, it's funny about the overscheduling. It's the same thing. It's because I don't have anywhere to be. So whenever something comes up, I say, sure. And then that's all of a right. sudden, I, and then I find myself scheduled. <laughs> that, that's right. I said the same thing. I'm saying yes to everything, plus watching insane amounts of television. I've been up uh, till about three or four in the morning for the past week. I'm a little obsessed with Babylon Berlin. <laughs> All right, I got to check oh. it out. I'm watching Sexual Education, which is on Netflix and a show from England. I mm -hmm. just finished season one. It's great. Yeah. I don't know what I would do if I if it was normal times. I wouldn't be up every night watching something. Yeah. But I think yeah. you know. I don't have to look my best tomorrow, so it's okay. That's right. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, I'm going to jump into the – when we met at the conference, I just wanted to talk a little bit because I am I was so uh, sad that the, that the recording didn't work for whatever reason. But when we met at Southeast Theater Conference, what were you doing at the conference? Wow. It feels like – for first, let me just say, it feels like forever ago. It feels, it feels like a whole – you're it right. Does. It feels like a lifetime ago. And mainly, I think it's... For six weeks. Six weeks ago. I mean, unbelievable how the world has changed in six weeks. Yeah. Um, and I guess and, maybe maybe it's not talking about exactly... I guess it's the hearing about the work you do. Yeah. And, you know, sure. I think that's what I was... Because sure. I thought it was really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, I... Well, I've been a professional actor for about close to 25 years now, which feels like also forever ago. And I uh, split my time between that and um, I'm a disability inclusion consultant, which uh, to the entertainment industry specifically. So basically that means I'm pretty much soup to nuts uh, talking disability inclusion in all areas for the industry, whether that be uh, accessibility concerns, physical plant accessibility concerns, like uh, is your audition space accessible, is your performance space accessible, you know, securing interpreters for auditions, that sort of thing, um, consulting on projects that has to do with disability in terms of authenticity and accuracy and storylines and language. But the bulk of my job is, is uh, advocating for disabled artists. So advocating for increased inclusion of disabled artists in the industry and specifically disabled performers most of the time. Interesting, I didn't actually, when you said um, the consulting about authenticity, how, when I think about that work, I think, wouldn't it be easier if we also had authentic actors in the role? Well, that's what I'm talking about when I say authenticity. I mean, when I'm talking about script authenticity, I'm talking about making sure that the content is authentic in the way that it is presented 
and accurate because so often it's not when you look at when you look at the the sheer content actors aside just the words on the written page the experience is often uh written through a non-disabled person's lens so it's not accurate of the lived experience of people with disabilities it's skewed to fit in a particular mode which is usually you know uh representing the disabled person as a villain or a hero or a symbol or you know yeah it's an, an idea yeah it's, it's an idea rather than a fully fleshed out three-dimensional human being or very often even a two-dimensional human being would be nice <laughs> so and are you involved do you get involved in is that when you said script consulting do people bring you do they know to bring you in early on uh some do and some don't it's i'm i'm again when i say soup to nuts it's i really do mean soup to nuts it's it's either oh crap we need to cya right because <laughs> we've screwed up and um you know and that's what it was early on it was mostly cya you know now it's more getting involved in in the earlier process or like uh, just to give you, for instance, like certain television shows will get scripts from their writers that the casting director, and normally my contacts are the casting directors. Um, sometimes directors, it's usually either writers or casting directors, and more often or not, it's casting directors. And so in, in, in the instance of say a, a script right so we'll just take a network television show for a network television show they'll get a script handed to them and say there's a character with down syndrome right and so they will very often depending on the show and who i have the relationship with some of them will come to me and say could you look at this you know and and check it for authenticity now of course if they have a, a contact that actually has that lived experience they usually run it through me first and then i will always say but you should check with whoever it is you're hiring because that person is the expert like i can give you the general sense of whether or not you know what i think but i'm but i don't have that lived experience so you should always defer to the person assuming that you're going to cast it authentically. And, and that, it's actually good just by putting that question to them or creating that, just saying that statement puts the pressure on them or yeah. puts another push to do that. Yeah, I mean, usually by the time they come to me, they already know that that's a given. Yeah. If they're talking to me, that I'm going to push for that and that they, they are going to push for that wherever possible. It's good. I'm glad it's happening more than, more than CYA today. Yes. Yeah, it is. I mean, certainly we have a long way to go, but there are certain, you know, and, and you could see in the, if you watch television or you watch plays, you can see who's doing it and who's not. Yeah. And, and I'm going to jump because I'm going to go back to acting when you said 25 years. So I think I'm going to ask the question that I always ask, which is, what do you think got you, what, what got you working at the next level for you? What, what event helped you and however you want to define next level at this point as yeah, an actor. I'm interested in, I, I, I was looking over the transcript of our previous conversation and there was a lot of discussion about what the terms, 
next level or emerging artist or what, you know, because you could be an emerging artist at, you know, age 50 or age 60 or these depending on, you know, and, and very often in our business, people use the term emerging artist to uh, describe young people. And one would hope that that emerging artists are young, but that isn't always the case in our business. And I find that that uh, older folks who have been either underrepresented or have come to the career late are at a disadvantage because they don't have access to the same opportunities. So I'm sort of answering your question in a roundabout way um, because I'm not actually sure how to answer what got me to the next level because I, for better or worse, I have never been one of those actors that has looked at my career on a timeline. You know, so many actors are like, okay, so by 30, I want to have done my first Broadway show and by Blitzen, you know, I, I never did that. Um, so I sort of never marked my trajectory in that way. So I don't, I don't really know how I, it just, it's been a, it's been a, a slow and steady slog. I guess, I guess my answer would be, and it's maybe not a satisfying one, but I've never gotten off the train. <laughs> That's you know good. I mean? I've never, ever gotten off the train. Of course, you know, like every actor, I've, I've had moments, many moments where I've been, why am I doing this? Why am I putting myself through this? You know, because it's painful. More often than not, it's painful. You know, at least for, for me as a, as, a, as a traditionally underrepresented actor, I'm of a certain age where it was painful more than it wasn't for a very long time, right? Yeah. Um, because I'm, I'm disabled that, you know, when I was starting out, it was, yeah, I was really an anomaly in a big way. Um, certainly in terms of training, I was an anomaly, you know, when I was in undergrad, I, I didn't know anybody who was like me, who was, you know, pursuing acting as a career. And when I got to graduate school, I didn't really know anybody like me who was pursuing acting as a career. There were people, but I didn't know them. And it was only a handful like literally maybe 10 of us were pursuing graduate degrees at the time that I was. And when you say like a handful, you mean across the country? I mean across the country. Yeah. Yeah. Because it just it wasn't done. You didn't do it. And because I guess if you did, you did it, you were, you know, uh, you definitely bucking the system that was not designed for you. So I, I think probably the answer to my question is I just never got off the train. I think yeah. I think it's a great answer. I actually think it's it was funny when you said you never tracked it. I didn't track I didn't track mine either, except for I would track it about every five years looking back. And I'd look back and go, Oh, what what did I do and how did that happen? And then and then there was a point when I stopped because I'm like, Oh, this is just what I do. You know, I'm on the right. train. Exactly. Like to take your phrase, yeah. I'm on the train. Yeah, for better or worse, I'm not getting off the train. I remember um Somebody said to me once, a, a friend of mine uh, who's since passed, I, I could say his name. So Phil, Philip Seymour Hoffman was my next door neighbor for a good many years, about 
10 years or so in the village and we became friendly and, you know, we used to sit on our stoop and chat and I met him, I think he had just done Boogie Nights the year before. So, you know, and I was a little late to the party, but when I, you know, I knew he was an actor and I knew who he was, but then I saw Boogie Nights fell in love with him and I distinctly remember having a conversation with him about where you know how being just dis not dissatisfied but disappointed and frustrated about where I was in my career and he just said you know just keep doing it keep doing it you know and and stay true to what it is you want to do he, he I remember he told me this anecdote about he went to LA you know he went to Hollywood to do the thing and he was doing Twister. So I think this was the mid nineties. He said, I was doing that movie Twister and I, and I literally remember having this moment where I was doing it and he was like, what am I doing? This is not what I want to be doing. So he said, immediately after I finished that movie, I moved back to New York. He said, cause I, I just knew I had this epiphany that this, this was not what I wanted to be doing. It didn't matter how much money I was making. So he just was like, just stay slow and steady. Like it's more important to, to stay on the train with the craft and remember and to keep connecting yourself to, to why it is you wanted to do it in the first place. Yeah, I think that's the most important thing is to remember why we're doing it. You know, I was actually thinking about that when we were talking about, it's, it's funny, I'm also happy to talk about <laughs> Phil at any time. Um, yeah. But uh, but I was thinking about with all the activity that's happening, the Zoom readings and everything that everybody's doing right now, I, I keep thinking about intentionality, like why are we doing it? You know, yeah. like, go, going, like you said, you're going to class and you're taking a value to this opportunity. It's like, but do I need to have a public reading on the internet of a play that's in the first draft just because I want a, people to see me? I'm like, no, I wouldn't right. have done that before the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting though. It's, it's, it's fascinating. It's been bothering me for the past couple of days. And, and I, I bring it up because it's, it's relevant to our conversation about inclusion. I, uh, and I'm not going to name any names. There was a reading being done of a play recently online via Zoom that I had seen when it premiered about 20 something years ago it was when I first moved to New York. Like maybe it was 20 years ago. I don't remember the exact year. Um, and I thought, Oh, I'd like to revisit this, you know, cause it's, cause they did, I don't know, for some reason the cast and the writer must've gotten together and said, Oh, let's, you know, and it was a benefit. So, and it was, televised on YouTube. So I thought, oh, let me, let me see, you know, this will be fun to revisit this. And at, and at this point I had worked with a couple of the actors who were in the original cast who were doing the reading. So I thought, oh yeah, it would be really great to, you know, see that because I didn't know who that person was at the time, you know. Um, so I was watching it and about 20 minutes in, I thought, whoa, how the world has changed, 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 changed. Because the entire cast was white. Ah. Um, 
And there was so much use of disability as, as a sight gag, as a joke, and none of the characters was disabled. And I thought, wow. And I remember at the time when I saw it, liking it and liking the acting. So I thought, and I think I posted cryptically about it on Facebook the other day, how, how much the, our theater has changed in the last 20 years and how much I've changed in the last 20 years and how far we still have to go. Because my question, and it's, I keep saying, I'm thinking circuitously today, it seems. You had said, like, why, why are we doing this? I was sitting there thinking, why did they choose to present this play in this time when there's a whole canon, thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces to choose from, and this is the one that they chose? Yeah, that's that's been my question too, and you know, it's, I just want to acknowledge it's also amazing how we we evolve because what we thought was important twenty years ago, thirty years ago, what we thought was entertaining, is no yep. longer doesn't meet the doesn't fit the bill anymore. Uh, has that's changed, right. and that's yeah. a, and it's good that we're evol that we're changing, but I do think there's an intentionality about the that I think is important about the work just the idea of like, why, why are we creating? What are we sharing? What are we doing? And, and like your conversation with Phil about just be, remember to be true to yourself. And I think there's, there's something, it's incredibly important, you know, when you're, when you're starting out and you got to meet everybody and you got to do work just to get experience and things like that, that's, that's one thing. But after yeah. a little bit of time, you have to tap into what motivates you, what is your value system, what drives you. And that's changed for me over time, too, as a, you know, just as an actor and a human being, but, but also as an, as an advocate, and a, you know, for artists with disabilities. Like, there are things that I won't do now. I, I can't do them. You know, some people don't mind taking work that's, that is appropriative, that is, uh, uh, you know, framing people, framing disabled people in a way that is not particularly accurate or authentic or uh, three-dimensional. I cannot do that in good conscience anymore. Uh, particularly in my role, you know, as I continue to do this work as a consultant and as an advocate for my fellow disabled artists, I can't do that in good conscience because then I'm Damn it, first of all, ethically, I, I don't feel comfortable as a human being. And I don't feel comfortable as an artist, but I also am damaging my professional reputation. If I take something that I'm flying in the face of, that I advocate for every day, and then I turn around and take something just because I need the work. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it, it is. It's interesting. I used to say, you know, I try to avoid becoming that which I mock. You know, I don't want to do the thing that I'm that I don't agree with other people doing. And if I find myself doing it, then what am I doing? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I don't begrudge anybody else for doing it. You know, I mean, I don't have to like it, but I can't 
be the arbiter of it. I can't be anyone else's barometer if you want to take that role. I mean, I have this discussion with little people all the time, interestingly enough, because most of my friends who are little people won't take those token little people role, the, the dwarf, you know, the, the dwarves, the elves, I'm using air quotes and so we're not going to be able to see those, but you know, the dwarves, the elves, the, they won't take those roles, you know, out of, out of respect for themselves, out of respect for the community, because they don't want to perpetuate those stereotypes, you know? So the content, I mean, in every community, every underrepresented community has that. Communities of color have that. You, you, a lot of people won't take the maids and the bodega owners and the taxi drivers and the, you know, you know for the same reason. Yeah, um, which I think is, I think it's good. Uh, I want to say, I think the part about having your self-integrity is key. And I also, I'm also interested in you, as this has changed, it's funny when you say it's changed for you, but it's actually over time, not only because you become an advocate, but as you're working more, I'm curious, you know, you're, you said it's the actor studio. How do you get engaged in all of your communities that you're part of? Wow, that's a good question. Well, you know, interestingly enough, and this is going to tie back to where we are now in this moment in time, I have, uh, traditionally, I am an extreme extrovert. Um, I mean, growing up, I, I, knew, I knew early on that I was an extrovert. I like people. I like dealing with people. I like engaging in conversations i when i was a kid i used to talk on the phone i could talk on the phone for hours and hours and hours so i i knew that about myself but as you know as as circumstances change and as you grow older i, I found that i've become more introverted just because of the circumstances of my life i'm single i you know obviously i live alone so i've had to become more introverted by necessity um, but I think also I've become more comfortable with myself, not to say that extreme extroverts aren't comfortable with themselves, but I think that's probably was part of it. So I have become, there's, a, I have more balanced over time, but I still think I'm an extrovert at heart. So I seek out community. I, for the first 30 or so years of my life, I didn't have any disability community just because I didn't really know anybody who, anyone else who was disabled. And I wasn't connected to community in that way. My only community has ever been the artistic community. That was, it was my natural community from the very beginning. Because I've been an, an artist since I was, you know, I mean, probably out of the womb, but I think I identified at age five that that's what I wanted to do for my life. So again, I'm sort of been a one trick pony where I've just stayed on that train for all these years. It's and, interesting uh, when you say you didn't have that community and I have this weird question in my head about when you were trailblazing, when you were one of a handful of people going to a graduate degree, it, it makes me think almost because there, you weren't aware there wasn't a community. There was also nothing stopping you from pursuing to, to pursue what you wanted to pursue. And yeah, it, it, I don't I don't know. I how, don't did you, know. how did that come about, that, that spirit? I don't, oh, I was born with that. I, I just have to 
think that I was born with it because I never, it's like I said, I keep using this train analogy, but I just, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And this is what I was meant to do from the very beginning. Like my parents aren't artists. No one in my family are artists. I mean, my grandmother sang in church and stuff and she had a beautiful voice, but nobody has pursued a career in the arts. So it was a, it was a singular pursuit. It's interesting because I'm studying now with Giles Foreman. Do you know who Giles Foreman is? Yeah. Um, so I'm studying with Giles Foreman. I'm taking a, an online class. Um, and, uh, you know, we're studying Laban and, uh, and Giles' teacher, Yap Malgram. So we're sort of, we're, we're studying the principles of Laban and, and psychological transformation, character transformation. And sort of the study of like where people fall in terms of their, uh, the way that they, they literally move through the world, but also psychologically move to, through the world. Are you a person who uh, moves through the world sensing things? Are you a person who is a thinker and is a, is, moves through the world predominantly as a thinker or as an intuitor or as a feeler? And so we're being asked to examine, of course, ourselves, but other people as well, in terms of how to translate that to characters. If you can break it down into character development, what kind of person is this person? How do they predominantly move through their, their life uh, emotionally? And how do they, so then how does that translate into the way that they move through space? Which is so interesting. So I've been thinking about a lot about myself like what, and I know that my predominant thing is thinking. I'm predominantly thinking. And then I would say thinking and feeling with a good bunch of intuiting in there, right? So it's, so it's an interesting, and I think I'm a thinker because probably largely because I'm disabled. I developed uh, thinking is my predominant way of moving through the world because I didn't have access to my physical, you know, the, my physical body in the way that, you know, most children do. And so that's, that's been an, sort of an interesting revelation for me and, and how I moved through the world when I was a child and my study, like I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And I just, I sort of made the trajectory that way. I'm a very good student, so, and I always have been. Also a very good at not saying, not taking no for an answer. No, yeah, well, I think that's probably just that. I think that's combination disability and, and combination uh, Italian. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, my mom is not like that, but, my, you know, it's interesting because my mom is, you know, she's great, but she is definitely more on the passive side than I am. I think I get the not taking no for an answer from my dad. You know, my stepdad used to say, you'd be the perfect child, uh, and this is terrible, child abuse, but you'd be the perfect child if we could stick a sock in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> thank God, thank God you never stuck a sock in my mouth. But you know, you get the you get the analogy. We'll go back to the fact that the times have changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 
It's funny. I'm like, I'm, I'm just thinking about the fact that you're moving forward and not saying no. And you say, Oh, it's the, not taking no for an answer and you're associating it with disability. And I think, I think that's great because as a way of thinking like, Oh, I had to, I didn't have a choice, but I, I, it may be intuitive for you because I think other people do take no for an answer or, you know, and, and, uh, and I think it's amazing when you were like, just the fact that no one else was an artist and you decided at five that you were going to do something. You didn't know what, you yeah. know, you can't picture, can't picture what the career is going to turn out to be. I think my parents, my mother in particular, I have to credit my mother too, because she never, she never tried to, I think, you know, it's interesting because they say the thing that, the thing that's great about the thing that's great about you is also the thing that's usually not great about you. It's that two sides of the same coin. I, I had a boyfriend once who, and I was just thinking about this yesterday in relation to the work that I'm doing with Giles. It's the, he said, the thing that I love about you is also the thing that I hate about you. And I said, well, that's provocative. What is that? And he said, you always try so hard. And it's true. It's the thing that's propelled me, and it's also the thing that's, that's, that's held me back. And so I think that as a child, I think one of the great advantages I had was my mom was never a person to exert, try to exert her influence and say no. She always said yes to the things that I said I wanted to do. She never stopped me. I don't think she ever thought that I would continue it as a life choice, but she never tried to stop me. And I asked her once, you know, why? Because, you know, at a time in my life when I was like, why am I even doing this? Why did you let me do this? You know, sort of in that blame game. Why did you, why did you stop me? <laughs> why didn't you make me go to law school? You know, um, I've been a great lawyer. <laughs> well, I would have. That's the other thing that I was a double major, uh, political science with a concentration in constitutional law and, and acting at the same time. And my mother was so desperately hoping I would go to law school. Um, but of course I didn't. Um, I said, the world has too many lawyers, like it doesn't have too many actors. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I asked her once, I said, well, why did you never try to stop me? And she said something interesting. And she only told me this about 10 years ago. It never occurred to me that she would ever feel this way. And it, it's, it's partly generational, too, and the time and the understanding of disability. Because at the time, there wasn't as much emphasis on getting knowledge about disability as there is now. She said... I didn't know how long you would live, so I never wanted to keep you from doing the things that you were that you were passionate about. That's um, very powerful. So I, I wanted to say no to anything you chose to do. And I thought, wow, first of all, I never knew that you thought I wasn't going to live long enough to, you know, so... I, I'm sitting here thinking that it's very moving, actually. I mean, it's mm -hmm. scary that she thought that, but also very loving that that's the experience she wants yeah. you to have. Yeah. I, also, I also think, you know, we have to plan for our futures and we have to do the work to take care of ourselves. But 
<laughs> at the time we're in right now and other life experiences tell us maybe it's better to live as if you don't know how long you got anyways. I've always looked like that. Again, I keep saying for better or worse, but like, you know, I live in a, I live in a, you know, a very small apartment. I'm very lucky. I get to live in Manhattan, but I, I live, you know, very, um, I will be, let's just say I will be in this apartment until the day I die. Right. I know that I'm aware of that when I moved in here because it's affordable uh, and I'll never leave. And that is a source of comfort in a way, but it's also more often than not a, a source of sadness because I, because again, I never, I didn't plan for the, my family. I don't come from a family of planners. <laughs> so like financial solvency was not, uh, uh, stressed in my household, so I'm not great with my finances. <laughs> and I, just, you know, just just enough to keep going. Yeah, and it works. Yeah, that paycheck to paycheck. I think we're we're discovering that I think there's a lot of Americans at this moment who do that. I thought I thought it was all of us. You know, I thought it was all the artists and oh, the well, now it's everybody. And now it's everybody. Hearing that about your mom and, and education, what it it makes sense probably because you could have been a lawyer. But what got you into the advocacy? What made you what made you take on the cause of someone besides yourself? I think it really happened by accident, honest. And, and I have to credit my former employer um, at Inclusion in the Arts, which used to be non-traditional casting project. Uh, in 2006, I was asked to participate in a showcase. Um, of disabled actors that was being uh, held as part of an overall event that was artists and the use of assistive technology for artists with disabilities. Um, so there was a showcase component and I auditioned and I got in the showcase and it was just a series of, it was, I think there were six of us presenting three scenes, all disabled actors. And at the end of that event, um, I got a phone call from um, the executive director of non-traditional casting project at the time, Sharon Jensen, who said, you know, I, I was really impressed with you, not only with your work as an actor, but I don't know what I said. I have no recollection of why I impressed her, what I actually said. But she said, I was very impressed with you. And I have this position, this part-time position uh, at my organization of disability advocate. Um, the organization was founded to address problems of racism in theater, film, and television. And she added disability to the mix when she signed on as executive director. So she said, I, I started this position of disability advocate and the person I hired had to leave and I'm looking for somebody, would I think that you would be a good fit? This was 2005. Wow. And she said, would you be interested? And I said, absolutely, I'll come in and talk to you. And we talked and I said, you know, I will take this job, but you need to know I will take it on the condition that I, you know that I'm an actor first and foremost. So if an acting job comes along, that's going to take precedence. And also on the condition that since I'm going to be advocating to get actors jobs, I need to be put into that mix as well. 
I will never try to sell myself or advocate entirely for myself, but I, but I won't take myself out of the running. As I said, if you're able to accept those two conditions, I will happily take the job. And that's how it started. That's uh, a so smart of you to, I'm glad they recognized that in you, but so smart of you to put that on the table at the top because you know, so many times we take jobs or survival opportunities mm -hmm. that take us out of what we want and we end up, you know, losing, getting off the train, losing the track. Well, of I, did, yeah. I mean, and to be honest, I did. I did do that, even though I'd never veered from that principle. And there were times where I like I left for three months to do a tour in England and that I would leave to do other things. But I did, but I did, I, I lost myself. I lost my way. And partially it's because I was too good at the job. I became known, really known as a disability advocate because I was very good at my, I am very good at my job. So now what I'm doing since the closure of the organization and in, in, at the end of 2017, I decided to take up the mantle myself as an independent consultant. Uh, because the need is still there, right? The need for an advocate for disabled artists is still there. So that's why I decided, well, I need a job and why not do this? Because I have many contacts in the industry and I'm good at it and people trust me. So I should do this. But I also had to have a conversation with myself and say, well, something has to shift because I'd been wanting to get out of working for the organization for probably about half the time I was there because I started to recognize that I was losing my own center. I was losing my artistic center and I, I didn't like it. And I, and I was, and I was not sure how to find it while doing this job. So that was a conversation that I had with myself when I decided to take it on as an independent contractor. So I just shifted the focus a little bit. Yeah, I was going to, what did you, do you know what you did besides shifting the focus, which I actually think is vitally important. I think you and I talked about this before, but I, you know, I started a theater company to cultivate the farm, to cultivate early career yeah. artists. And about five years in, I went, wait a minute, I'm not directing. Yeah, right. You know, as much like I'm doing once a year, I used to do five a year, you know, and, uh, and it may have been as simple as just shifting the focus that's allowed work to come that way. But do you, do you know what you consciously started doing as an artist to put that shift back on the other side of the career? Yes, I did. I, I, uh, I got myself out there in a way. Well, I was very lucky because I had an opportunity come along uh, pretty shortly after the organization closed, a company that I work with, TBTB, where I'm a company member, that's Theater Breaking Through Barriers, used to be Theater by the Blind, uh, had commissioned Becca Brunstetter to write a new play for them because she had written several, a series of one acts for them, 10-minute uh, plays over the years, and they really wanted to commission her to write a full length. And she said yes. And they asked her, you know, what idea she had. And she sort of mapped out an idea that she was thinking about. And it was a three-hander. And 
she, they said, you know, she said, well, who do you have in the company that you think would be right for these roles or this role? Cause it was a three hander and two of the characters are non-disabled. And luckily enough, they said, oh yes, I think Christine would be perfect for this role. And it, and originally it was like a more of an advocacy role. And so they targeted me. They said, oh yeah, we, we, we've been trying to find a way to spotlight her as an artist because she doesn't get the opportunities that she deserves. And this would be perfect. And so that was a really, it was wonderful to have a piece of work to actually shift the way I was working. And then I, and then I was very strategic about it. I said, okay, I'm doing this three-hander, which is huge off-Broadway by, you know, a very successful playwright who's a wonderful writer and a wonderful collaborator. And then I, and then I remember also, I'll come back to Phil, talking to Phil about, because, you know, Phil at the time that I, that I was friendly with him was the artistic director of Labyrinth. And I always wanted to be part of Labyrinth. And I was weird about, I, cause I had a personal relationship with him. I never wanted to cross that line and be like, Oh, can I, can I come be part of your company? Like I would dance around it. So I never like, you know, I sort of hinted at it and he would say, yeah, send us your stuff, you know, but I never pushed it. So when I was doing Public Servant, which is the name of the play I did that, of Becca's, I said, you know what, I have all of these really wonderful, solid relationships with the casting directors in New York from my days of inclusion, but also because they brought me in for projects. And they're very, very solid relationships, and it's time to take advantage of those. So I invited all of them to come see Public Servant. And I would say 90% of them came. That's great. And, and that was my way of saying, you know, hey, I know you probably forgot that this is my primary gig, even though you've called me in for stuff with other people and I haven't always gotten the gig, this is, I'm putting this forward in a very intentional way. That's great. Yeah, I find it's funny, that's also part of the shift when I, when I make it, made it probably two years ago, is then to remember like, oh right, not only do I have to do the work, but then I have to tell everybody. <laughs> exactly. See me in this light. And it's really smart because they do know you and they, you have a relationship with them. And I think it's easy for us to think that we, I think it's easy to start to, for this career, for people to label you one way or another and to lose, and to lose track of what your passion is, you know, not not only for you personally to lose track of it, but they lose track of like, Oh, right. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and it's still, I still struggle with it because, you know, they've known me as a number for a number of years as that thing primarily. And they still call on me for that. It's, I get calls every day from casting directors who I have relationships with calling me for those things. But also they know that I'm, you know, and I've also been more strategic about how I put things forward for other people too. Yeah, how how's, how has that changed and, and what does that mean? Um, you know, when I was working for the organization, that was my job. It was right. my job to advocate for other people, right? And I still do it, but I, I'll be honest and say that I, I have been, I am less apt to 
really push for certain things that I'm right for. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm trying to find a I'm trying to find a diplomatic way to say it. No, I got it. That's clear. Uh, I, I had a casting director say to me recently, oh, you know, I went in for a role, I auditioned, and afterwards we chatted and she said, wow, it's so good of you, or like, how charitable of you. I can't remember the word she used, but basically, how big of you to refer people, to refer other actors for roles that you are also auditioning for. And nobody has ever articulated that no casting director had ever articulated that to me out loud. So it was like thunder in my ear. And I went home and I went, yeah, I don't need to do that anymore. <laughs> I, I, I'm not working for an organization. I'm not going to fire myself because I didn't, you know, so I still do it. I'm just more, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm more cognizant of no, I think it's good to, you know, what I'm hearing is that idea of taking care of yourself. You know, we, we yeah. all, you know, it's important to, rec to a couple of things. One is like to recognize when a job's not right for you. That's then, right. And I'm so good then, at that. I'm then so recommend, yeah, then recommend 20 other friends of yours. And it's, That's right. But if you're right for the job, it's funny, I'm, I, I serve a lot of other artists and I, and I create opportunities and I, I think That's it's very right. hard to just close your mouth and say, you know who'd be good for that? Me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, it, it is very hard, especially when for years it, your job was dependent on you not saying that. Like yeah. You're, you're implicitly, you're just putting yourself in the, in the whole mix and seeing if you're the one that gets plucked out. But it's, but it's interesting because I, um, Shoot, I lost my train of thought. Uh, sorry, I have something that I wanted to say that's interesting about Phil because I'm also a member of Labyrinth and and uh, and when I came around in 2003, 2004, there was this weird thing in the culture where you didn't tell people if you wanted something like that was not looked. Uh that was not so probably you were handling everything right just to say that you didn't come right out and say it although i don't agree with that philosophy <laughs> yeah but i yeah. remember being shocked when i was around it they're like oh don't tell people you want to direct a play don't tell people you want i'm like in that in that community because it looked like you know if the work rises above and everyone sees the work and i think it's not true which is crap yeah it's not yeah, true crap. Crap. You, you have to yeah. tell people you want it and you have to tell yeah. people why and that you're good at it. Yeah, because if you're not going to, one thing that I learned is if you're not going to advocate for yourself, nobody else is going to do it for you. And that's, and that's something that I teach in my workshops. Getting back to my time at SCTC and the Kennedy Center, I, I teach a workshop for, for actors from underrepresented communities on how to be your own, use your lived experience as an asset. And the number one lesson I try to, to leave people with is to you have to be your own self-advocate. You have to, because nobody else is gonna do it for you. They just aren't. They're A, they're not equipped to, and B, they're not gonna care as much as you do, and they're not gonna know. And so. it's true, and also if they are advocating for you, you have to work harder than the advocate you have to that's pick right. up the baton and say let me go well, that's the same as having an agent that most people think you get an agent or a manager and they you they're going to do all the work no 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 
you have to work sometimes even harder when you have an agent and a manager, depending on who that agent or manager is. Yeah. What, what does that mean when you say to use your experience, your experience is your best? As an asset? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, for me, what it means is like, so often if you're from an underrepresented community, I mean, I'll just use my own as an experience, like you're, you're told that you are less than, that you're told that you have something to prove, right? And, and, any, and that's still true today. Any casting director, and there are those out there, big ones too, who are, who are great casting directors, will tell you that that's crap. That you don't have to, that you don't have to be better. Because we're often told we have to be better, right? And, and there are casting directors out there who'll say, oh, that's not true. You don't have to be better than anybody else. You just have to be yourself. I'm here to tell you that that is crap, crap, and more crap. That's, that's a big lie because if you come from an underrepresented community, there are so many deep-seated prejudices that people don't even know that they have, right? When, you walk, when I walk in the room, there's probably 10 different things they're thinking. That they're not even aware that they're thinking, right? Or if you, the color of your skin or whatever, whatever gender you identify as, it, it, people have things that are their implicit biases or unconscious biases that they're not even aware of. And that's why we have to be better because like my coach says, and he uses this word to describe any actor, but it's particularly true for an, an actor from an underrepresented community that you have to be undeniable. You just have to be undeniable. I'll take my friend Allie Stroker for an example, right? Who just won the Tony. She, it's undeniable. Her talent is undeniable. That's why she's gotten where she is because she's worked her butt off. She's incredibly talented and you know, and at a time now when when the diversity, particularly disability, is trying to come to the fore and be celebrated, it, she's at a great moment in her life and her career. You know, but it's it's because she's undeniably talented that she is someone that's risen to the top. Yeah. You know, as to where, you know, no offense, but a straight, non-disabled white guy is gonna get chances to fail well i yeah it's, i i um <laughs> i am well aware of that and i, I actually it's funny i was just when you said that i had this i wrote this facebook note or something when 2016 when at the convention hillary and barack obama there was a picture of them on the stage and i thought you know just the fact for them it's the fact that they were willing they were they got the opportunity to try that's right and and what i wrote about and what i'm what you reminded me of is just that idea of like anything that a, a straight white guy in this culture says like i'd like to play for the yankees oh you should try that you know yeah right, <laughs> like, right. and and nobody says like oh you know you you should go get a graduate degree in theater <laughs> like you know to to a to an underrepresented community. That's not, that's not the message you get. No, no, you don't. You don't get the message to push yourself. I mean, you know, toward anything, particularly if you're disabled, most people are like, oh, they're just happy with whatever it is you choose. You know what I mean? With whatever it is you choose. And if you happen to be somebody who is like me and, you know, is in dogged pursuit of something, whatever it is, you're seen as extraordinary. 
But that yeah. thing about undeniable is it's what what um I wanted to say two things. One is when you said about use your story, your experience, it is that you're used to working. It's not like drawn and emotionally or this is what makes you unique. It's the fact that you know what it is to work. Yeah. Yeah. And be adaptable. Like we've, it's funny because we've been talking lately in the disability community about this whole coronavirus thing and how people are so not most people are so not used to what they're being asked to do now and so many people in the disability community across the world this is their life this is i mean they could learn a thing people could learn a thing or two from us like i don't like being in the house for a month but it doesn't i'm not i think i'm okay with it like people are always asking like how are you handling with the cabin fever. I mean, I spend a lot of time not in the apartment, but I'm okay with being in the apartment. And I know many of my friends who are very immunocompromised, like I've got friends that now are on like day 40 of lockdown. And when I mean lockdown, I'm, I, they don't go anywhere or see anyone except for who they live with because they're very, very compromised. And, you know, they're finding ways to make it work because they've done it their whole lives. Yeah. I think disabled people and also, and also people from any underrepresented community, what we do is we adapt. We find ways to make stuff work, which is why we're also great people to work with, you know, which is what people don't understand. Like, I'm going to make, I'm going to make it work. Whatever it is you give to me, I'm going to make it work. I'll find a way to make it work just because that's who we are because we've had to, because we've had to, we've had to live in a world that's not built for us. Yeah. I'm interesting. I'm thinking about it in a different way because I, about the coronavirus and what the world is being asked to do. And I think as a, as an artist who has, I want to say fluctuated between financial success and financial, whatever I, I sort of am thinking about, well, the rest of the world is getting to look at how I make decisions about what do I need to do? What do I need to buy? Is yeah. that important? Is that important? And 90% of the stuff that people think they need, you don't need. No, you don't need it all. Yeah, yeah. you don't need it all. It's interesting though, because I wonder, I was having this conversation with my friend last night. Um, her father-in-law died yesterday morning. Uh, not, from complications from the virus. He just died in his sleep. He had a heart attack. He was 89. And of course they couldn't, you know, just the children went into the house, but all of the, you know, all of the wives and husbands and the grandchildren were all outside, you know, waving at the mom from the, from the driveway. You know, it's terrible, but it, it is, it is a question of like, and we were talking about like, what's going to happen when we, when this stuff gets lifted, are we just going to go back to what we used to do? Like, I feel like theater, I feel like the two, at least in New York, the two uh, industries that are going to suffer the most are the restaurant industry and the theater. Because I don't know how people are going to wrap their brains around the fact that, particularly in New York, I'm, I'm thinking of one restaurant in particular that I love that I won't name because I don't want to put any bad juju on it. But 
you know, when you go there, it's a tiny little space and you have to be on top of the other person to eat in that. And how is, how is that going to work? How is going to the theater and sitting in a dark room with 700, 800, 1,000 other people? Like, what are, how, do you know what I mean? I do. It makes me, I have this fantasy that I don't know how we're going to go back to normal, but my fantasy is that I get to go to restaurants in New York and instead of 16 tables, there's five. Well, that's what we were talking about. Like maybe people need to be strategic, and but that means people are going to lose tons of money. Like yeah. I went to, a, I went to before, right before. I guess okay. So it was the Friday before I left for Toronto. So it was just when things were getting starting to get shut down. I went to a a private uh, final filmed performance of Martina Mayock's new play. To what? At, uh, Martina Mayock's new play. It was called Sanctuary City. Yep. Um, at the Lucy Lortel. So that's what, 150 seat theater, 200 seat theater. So we all had to practice social distancing. So there were four seats between each person. So that was the number of people that were let into the theater in order to obviously you know, protect us. And that was super early on. So I keep thinking, how are theaters going to survive that? First of all, how are theaters going to, how are the smaller theaters going to survive this shutdown? And I, I just don't, I, I want to be optimistic, but I don't have the skill to think about how the, the these theaters are, these smaller theaters that we love and that we, most of us work in, because most of us aren't working on Broadway you know, uh, how are they going to, how are they going to bounce back from this? Yeah, you know? I don't, I don't know how they're immediately, you know, I do think we're going to come back to doing theater at some point, but I do not know the immediate comeback. But what I think is the one thing that I like about our field is just like you were saying about we'll make it work is that we're innovative and we'll figure it out. You know, we'll figure something something out because what's proven about all the circling back to the beginning of our conversation, all the quantity of content that's on line right now is everybody has a need to create, but we also have a need right. to, we also have a need to share. You it's know? true. True. And, and be in the same room with each other. And I mean, it's, you know, this is, this is getting old quickly. I have to say this <laughs> zoom, it's great. And like, I'm glad that zoom is, you know, it probably happier than all get out, not, you know, at the expense of people dying and, and all the social distancing, but I'm sure they're like, Ooh, see that we never dreamed that this technology would be used in this way, but it's great that it's here and, and that we can use it. Um, and also what I'm super excited about making lemons out of, you know, making lemonade out of lemons, of course, is the, I just can't imagine the gorgeous content that is going to come out of this time from all the artists that we have. Like I, it's, it's going to be unbelievable. I think. I do too. I do too. And I think, um, you know, on that, it, it allowed us to have this conversation. And back it's true. And, I, and I'm glad that we were able to have this conversation because it's an interesting, it's, it's been a very different conversation from the one that we had uh, it was. 
Stacy, which was a great conversation, but this in some ways is a deeper, a much deeper, I feel, conversation because of where we are in, in time. Yeah, so, you know? well, thank you. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you, Christine, and I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I was, um, you know, I was so sad that the SCTC technical glitch happened uh, because it was a really rich conversation. Um, but I was so glad to connect with her and and uh, and just I was so grateful that we got to sit down again. And then, you know, sorry I was not face to face, but uh, with Zoom allowing us to do it and. You know, as you heard her talk about how connected she is to different communities. And I think that that's what I was talking about at the beginning of the pod is like, we, you know, hopefully during this period, we keep connecting. Stay connected to the people you already know, reach out to different people, check in on them, ask how they're doing, you know, um, share what you're doing and show up for people. But, but it's an interesting thing about online when you show up, let them know you showed up and it's not. It's not because you need attendance taken. It's because if you had gone in person, it would be an opportunity to say, hi, hi, I support what you do. I like what you do. And, um, and I want to be included, you know, and um, yeah. And that's interesting. I think about that and I, and I, you know, I like Christine and I, we have a lot of mutual friends and one of the things that we've, now that we've had two podcast interviews with each other, I'm like, Oh, I'm trying to, you know, want to create an opportunity for us to work together. And because now I'm, now she's somebody I know. And, and that's, and that is just how this happens. So I'm excited about that. And I'm, and I'm really grateful for the SCTC to, to create the opportunity. You know, we technically, the, as I said, the interview didn't work out, but uh, it did. We transcribed it. Hopefully we can share some of that because there were other, it was a completely different conversation. We talked about other things. The world was in a different place and hopefully we can share some of that with you as well in written form at some point. I hope everybody's doing great and I really appreciate you listening and hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully you're doing right. And if you're able to create, great. If you need a break, great. And, uh, I was thinking about something a friend of mine, Cordy Hoffman, said in an interview, and I'm, I'm not going to quote him exactly, but, you know, this is an opportunity to, to, like, step away from career and really engage with why we do what we do and to remember why we started. And when I read that, it resonated as true because, you know, I'm, I get stuck when I think of, like, oh, I got to make something because when this is over, I got to be ready to go. And the truth is... I got to keep in touch with why I'm doing it. You know, the podcast is clear. I want to share these conversations with people and their experience with you. Uh, but when it comes to my writing, you know, I don't need to have a play that's out for a pandemic to solve that. Somebody else may solve what this experience has been like and the human experience of that all. But I just need to pay attention to what what motivates me and what artistically is calling and and what I'm being asked to create and, and to stay in touch with the impulse for why we do this. And, um, and I think this is a good opportunity for that. You know, still we need to take care of ourselves. We need to make a living. We need to make sure that we're able to care for ourselves during this time, but uh, take a little bit of the pressure of careerism. You know, I talk about expanding community and that's an investment in the future, but as an artist, 
the pause might just be a time to say, what am I called to create? Why do I want to do this? What do I love about it? So I was grateful for that quote reading, and I forget where the article was, but uh, I was glad that Gordy shared it. And with that, we're out. <laughs> <laughs>